That's right. We here at Radio Parallax are continuing to fight for your right to party, and ours as well. You know, we're getting a little bit tired of the fact that uh, our programs seem to be dominated by news related to COVID-19 and Donald Trump. But frankly, it is hard to separate these twin disasters from one another. But we really do have to stay on top of Trump and his missteps because the things he's doing are not getting any smarter. We've predicted before and will predict again that because we do not have adequate testing, nor contact tracing, nor any sort of rigorous social isolation, at least the kind we see in other countries, uh, we don't think that the, those methods other countries used, all three of those, wisely, are going to be of much use to us here. We think, therefore, that the principles of epidemiology will demonstrate that over the next two to three weeks, all across the country, there will be hot spots developing. And like brush fires in a heavy windstorm, we expect things to flare up. It's going to take two or three weeks, but flare up they will. We decided for last week's program we would use what was originally intended as an addendum show as our regularly scheduled broadcast. We kind of thought it would be a good idea to see what happens, statistically speaking, and it's just a little bit too early to tell, but little surges are being reported all over the country. Now, a lot of the blame for this pandemic belongs on China's shoulders. Had China employed adequate epidemiology and not tried to cover this whole outbreak up, which they did for quite a while at first, going so far as to punish the doctor that was first observing cases of COVID-19, had they acted sensibly, the virus might not have escaped as it did, but they did not. It got away, and once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's really hard to put it back in. I think at this point, looking at the grand scheme of things, that um, containing this one, as SARS was back in 2003, just doesn't seem like it was in the cards. It got away. Nevertheless, had sensible actions been taken, had the advice of public health authorities been followed, the death toll, a number of cases in the United States, would have been dramatically reduced as we flattened that proverbial curve. In last week's program, we read that excellent article, which we again recommend to you from the June issue of Rolling Stone about the four people most responsible for America's poor response. But three of those people responsible for this fiasco of response, Robert Redfield of the CDC, Alex Azar, secretary and head of the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as Stephen Hahn at the FDA, all work for the fourth guy, Donald Trump. He doesn't make good decisions, and among other flaws, he appears to have a personality disorder. But if we try, we might be able to find somewhere in the middle of all this something of a lighter side to Donald Trump. British writer Nate White took a look at uh, Trump and had the following to say. In answer to the question of why do some British people not like Donald Trump, a few things spring to mind. Trump lacks certain qualities which the British traditionally esteem. For instance, he has no class, no charm, no coolness, no credibility, no compassion, no wit, no warmth, no wisdom, no subtlety, no sensitivity, no self-awareness, no humility, no honor, and no grace. All qualities, funnily enough, with which his predecessor, Mr. Obama, was generously blessed. So for us, 
the stark contrast does throw Trump's limitations into embarrassingly sharp relief. Plus, we like a laugh. And while Trump may be laughable, he's never once said anything wry, witty, or even faintly amusing. Not once. Ever. I don't say that rhetorically. I mean it quite literally. Not once. Not ever. And that fact is particularly disturbing to the British sensibility. For us to lack humor is almost inhuman. But with Trump, it's a fact. He doesn't seem to even understand what a joke is. His idea of a joke is a crass comment, an illiterate insult, a casual act of cruelty. Trump is a troll. And like all trolls, he is never funny and he never laughs. He only crows or jeers. And scarily, he doesn't just talk in crude, witless insults. He actually thinks in them. His mind is a simple, bot-like algorithm of petty prejudices and knee-jerk nastiness. There's never any underlayer of irony, complexity, nuance, or depth. It's all surface. Some Americans might see this as refreshingly upfront. Well, we don't. We see it as having no inner world, no soul. And in Britain, we traditionally side with David, not Goliath. All our heroes are plucky underdogs. Trump is neither plucky nor an underdog. He's the exact opposite. He's not even a spoiled rich boy or greedy fat cat. He's more a fat white slug, a job of the hut of privilege. And worse, he's that most unforgivable of all things to a British, a bully. That is, except when he's among bullies. Then he suddenly transforms into a sniveling sidekick. There are unspoken rules to this stuff. The Queensberry rules of basic decency, and he breaks them all. He punches downward, which a gentleman should never do. And every blow he aims is below the belt. He particularly likes to kick the vulnerable or voiceless, and he kicks them when they are down. His faults seem pretty bloody hard to miss. After all, it's impossible to read a single tweet or hear him speak a sentence or two without staring deeply into the abyss. He turns being artless into an art form. God knows there have always been stupid people in the world and plenty of nasty people too, but rarely has stupidity been so nasty or nastiness so stupid. He makes Nixon look trustworthy and George W. Bush look smart. In fact, if Frankenstein decided to make a monster assembled entirely from human flaws, he would make a Trump. Well, I'm pretty sure Nate White's not going to get an invitation to Mar-a-Lago anytime soon. But this correspondent finds nothing to object to in all of those statements. And when I look down at my right hand where I'm holding currently an article on Obamagate and what it really means, I just have to say, well, you know, let's keep in mind that this guy, well, let's just say, needs to be watched. Apparently last week in an all-caps tweet, Trump posted Obamagate! Exclamation point. Now the problem is he can't himself quite explain the substance of his latest bait-rousing conspiracy theory, besides calling it the biggest political crime and scandal in the history of the U.S. By far, exclamation point. Noted Frank Rich in NYMag.com, thanks to blanket coverage by Trump's spokespeople in right-wing media, we know that it involves President Obama, then-Vice President Biden, and a shadowy cabal of deep state operatives who ginned up a phony Russia investigation and supposedly tricked Trump's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, into lying to the FBI. Obamagate is another ludicrously fake conspiracy theory from the man who built this political brand on birtherism, according to Rick Wilson in thedailybeast.com. But it already has a buy-in from Senate Republicans who are readying subpoenas 
for FBI and intelligence officials involved in the Russia investigation. Meanwhile, Trump's enforcer, Attorney General William Barr, said that while he won't prosecute Biden or Obama, he has his sights set on key figures in the Russian probe, which Barr has called a grave injustice unprecedented in American history. Noted Rick Wilson as November nears, the Obamagate show trials are coming. Writing about Attorney General William Barr in TheAtlantic.com, former Deputy Attorney General Donald Ayer has said that Barr has openly enlisted as an arm of the Trump campaign, adding that Barr's gross abuses of his office began a year ago with his whitewashing of the Mueller report. He's grown more brazenly partisan over time, and his abuse of the Justice Department's power in order to defend President Trump and threaten his adversaries raises unprecedented perils in our democratic system. His recent motion to dismiss charges against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn denied undisputed facts, including that Flynn lied to the FBI about secret conversations with the Russian ambassador. Barr has called Special Counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation one of the greatest travesties in American history, and he is personally overseeing a criminal probe of the CIA and FBI officials who, Barr says, sought to sabotage, quote-unquote, Trump. Commenting on an open investigation is a blatant violation of Justice Department rules, but Barr has already claimed Obama administration officials, quote, broke the law, unquote, and, quote, will be held to account, unquote. His transparently partisan conduct paints a clear picture of what is to come. As November nears, Barr intends to use the Justice Department to damage Donald Trump's adversaries and help ensure his re-election. And of course, how they're going to play the COVID-19 pandemic is an integral part of that. Something we plan to continue to follow. You know, we quoted Eric Trump in the last segment saying something really stupid about a democratic plot to to gin up the whole COVID-19 pandemic. But here's the words of the president himself. In his tweet from a couple weeks ago, Trump said, The great people of Pennsylvania want their freedom now, and they're fully aware of what that entails. The Democrats are moving slowly all over the U.S. for political purposes. They would wait until November 3rd if it were up to them. Don't play politics. Be safe. Move quickly. The president then pushed the same theory on Fox News, arguing that Democratic officials trying to stop the spread of coronavirus are likely doing so, quote, because it'll hurt me, hurt me in the election. In other words, notes MSNBC, those rascally Democrats should reopen their states, but they're deliberately choosing not to as part of a dastardly electoral scheme. Sure, it may look like they're trying to save lives through mitigation efforts, but that's just what they want you to think. MSNBC said there's literally no evidence of any governors in either party trying to address the pandemic through tactics intended to affect the president's re-election prospects. In fact, Trump's whole idea is belied by the handful of Republican governors who have exercised the same caution as Democratic governors in their reopening. We did mention in the first segment that there's more blame to go around than that which we can lay upon Donald J. Trump. Worthwhile article in The New Yorker titled The Pandemic Protocol by Charles Duhigg starts out by talking about the Epidemic Intelligence Service, EIS. It turns out the CDC, in fact, has a program known as the Epidemic Intelligence Service, modeled on intelligence agencies. Alumni of the EIS are considered America's shock troops in combating disease outbreaks. The program has more than 3,000 graduates, and many now work in state and local governments across the country. Oh, 
By the way, I constantly refer in this program to the CDC or the Center for Disease Control. That's what we called it when I was in medical school. But somewhere along the line, somebody got the idea that control needed to be augmented by the use of the word prevention. So you will hear it referred to as the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. I would say that right now, with 1.8 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States, that ship has sailed. Yes, Mr. McMillan is hoping to prevent it in himself, and I'm hoping to prevent it in myself and, and for all of you, dear listener. But the truth is, there's no reason to call it the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So we won't do it again. Now, the EIS has a core principle, many core principles. One of them is that a pandemic is a communications emergency as much as a medical crisis. The article starts off talking about Dr. Francis Riedo, an EIS member. He's also the medical director for infectious disease at Evergreen Health, a hospital in Kirkland, Washington, just east of Seattle. When the first diagnosis of the coronavirus in the United States occurred in mid-January in a Seattle suburb, not far from his hospital, Francis Riedo heard that the patient's details, a 35-year-old man who'd walked into an urgent care with a cough and a slight fever and told doctors he'd just returned from Wuhan, China, Riedo said to himself, it's begun. Like hundreds of other epidemiologists in this country, Riedo had been following what was going on over in Wuhan. Riedo wanted right away to start warning people that evidence of an outbreak was growing in the U.S., but he had only suspicions, not facts, because... He couldn't do testing. Although he was suspicious of numerous cases, the rules at that time dictated that tests were confined to people who had been to China or exposed to someone who had been. By the end of February, the CDC began allowing the testing of patients with unexplained respiratory tract infections or fever and or symptoms of acute respiratory illness. So when Riedo started testing, he started finding it. One such patient, a man in his 50s with serious respiratory problems, had for three days dozens of family members at bedside. They came into the hospital and out of the building, going from home to work, visiting restaurants, shaking people's hands, and inadvertently exposing themselves and others to COVID-19. At that moment, there were no known U.S. coronavirus fatalities. But the next day, the man with all the family visitors died. He was America's first known COVID-19 death. Riedo called his wife and said, I don't know when I'm coming home. And then he started emailing everyone he knew to say we were past containment. It had already escaped. The article explains in great detail how it was the Epidemic Intelligence Service was founded and developed protocols for how to deal with epidemics and pandemics. It's worth reading all of that because it turns out the Trump administration decided to follow none of their advice and in fact sideline the people who knew what they were doing. The article talks about how things are currently at the CDC. Morale has plummeted. One official told the author, Everyone I talk to is so dispirited. They're working 16 hours a day and they feel ignored. I've never seen so many people so frustrated and upset and sad. We could have saved so many more lives. We have the best public health agency in the world and we know how to persuade people to do what they need to do. Instead, we're ignoring everything we've learned over the last century. Now, the initial coronavirus outbreak in New York City emerged at roughly the same time as those in Seattle, Washington, but the city's experience with the disease have been markedly different. There are many explanations. New York is more densely populated and it relies more heavily on public transportation, 
which of course forces commuters into close contact. But it's also true that the city's leaders acted and communicated very differently in the early stages of the pandemic. Seattle's leaders moved fast, persuaded people to stay home, and followed the scientists' advice. New York's leaders, despite having a highly esteemed public health department, moved more slowly, offered more muddled messages, and let politicians' voices dominate. Turns out New York Mayor Bill de Blasio has long had a fraught relationship with the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, which, though technically under his control, seeks to function independently and avoid political fights. Now, in early March, officials in Washington state asked Microsoft to close its offices, and they put scientists in front of the news cameras. But in New York, de Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo were giving speeches that de-emphasized the risks of the pandemic, even as the city was announcing its first official cases. De Blasio initially voiced caution, saying that no one should take the coronavirus situation lightly, but he soon told residents to keep helping the city's economy. Go on with your lives. Get out in the town, despite coronavirus, he tweeted on March 2nd. He urged people to see a movie at Lincoln Center. On the day that Seattle schools closed, de Blasio said at a press conference that you are, if you're not sick, if you're not in the vulnerable category, you should be going about your life. Cuomo, meanwhile, had told reporters that we should relax. He said that most infected people would recover with few problems, adding, we don't even think it's going to be as bad as it was in other countries. Noted Charles Duhigg, de Blasio and Cuomo's instincts are understandable. A political leader's job in most situations is to ease citizens' fears and buoy the economy. During a pandemic, however, all those imperatives are reversed. A politician's job is to inflame our paranoia because waiting until we can see the danger means holding off until it's too late. New York's epidemiologists were horrified by the comforting messages that de Blasio and Cuomo kept giving. Jeffrey Shaman, a disease modeler at Columbia University, said all you had to do was look at the West Coast and you knew it was coming for us. That's why Seattle and San Francisco and Portland were shutting things down. But New York dithered instead of telling people to stay home. By early March, the city's Department of Health had sent the mayor numerous proposals on fighting the virus's spread. Since there weren't enough diagnostic kits to conduct extensive testing, again, that problem we keep talking about, Public health officials proposed sentinel surveillance, asking local hospitals to provide the Department of Health with swabs collected from people who had flu-like symptoms and had tested negative for influenza. By testing a selection of these swabs, the department could estimate how rapidly and widely the coronavirus was moving through the city. The health department in New York began collecting swabs, but the initiative met with swift resistance. Under federal health laws... Such swabs have to be anonymized for patients who haven't consented to a coronavirus test. This meant that even if city officials learned that many people were infected, officials wouldn't be able to identify, let alone warn, any of them. So the mayor's office refused to authorize testing the swabs. They didn't want to have to say, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of you who are positive. We just don't know who. Well, this was an opportunity to communicate to New Yorkers that this is serious, you have to stay home. The effort got blocked over fears that it might create a panic. But such alarm might have proved useful. After all, said an official to the author, panic is pretty effective at getting people to change their behavior. Instead, the mayor's office informed the health department the city would sponsor a job fair to find new disease detectives. Health officials were very, very angry, one official told the author, noting that uh, they were furious that de Blasio kept telling New Yorkers to go out and get a test if they suspected they were infected. On March 4th, he tweeted, If you feel flu-like symptoms, fever, cough, and shortness of breath, and recently traveled to an area affected by coronavirus, go to your doctor. 
This was the opposite of what city health supervisors were advising. People needed to stay inside and call their doctor if they felt sick. Making trips to the doctor's office or emergency rooms only increased the odds that the virus would spread and the city's limited supplies of tests needed to be safe for people with life-threatening conditions. As a city scientist offered plans for more aggressive action and provided data showing that time was running out, the mayor's staff responded that the health officials were politically naive. At one point, Dr. Marcel Layton, the city's assistant commissioner of communicable diseases and an EIS alum, who is revered by health officials across the nation for her inventiveness and dedication, was ordered to City Hall in case she was needed to help the mayor answer questions from the press. She sat in a bench in the hallway for three hours away from her team while politicians spoke to the media. And of course, Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo got bickering about what was going on. On March 17th, de Blasio told residents to be prepared right now for the possibility of a shelter-in-place order. The same day, Cuomo told the reporter, there's not going to be any you-must-stay-in-your-house rules. Cuomo's staff quietly told reporters de Blasio was acting psychotic after he finally came around. But three days later, Cuomo announced an executive order putting the state on pause which was essentially indistinguishable from stay-at-home orders issued by cities in Washington State, California, and elsewhere. Anyway, the punchline of all this is that New York City has the same social distancing policies and business closure rules as Seattle does, but because the recommendations came later than Seattle, and because communication was less consistent, it took longer to influence how people behaved. According to data collected by Google from cell phones, nearly a quarter of Seattleites were avoiding their workplaces by March 16th. In New York City, another week passed until an equivalent percentage did the same. Tom Frieden, a former CDC director, has estimated that if New York had started implementing stay-at-home orders 10 days earlier than it did, it might have reduced COVID deaths by 50 to 80%. So, as we said, Donald Trump isn't the only one that's made mistakes. It's just that other politicians seem to learn from them. The Washington Post notes that Dr. Rick Bright has confirmed our worst fears. He testified before the House last week. The former top federal vaccine official said that in January and February, he saw a pandemic coming and pleaded with superiors at the Department of Health and Human Services to ramp up production of N95 masks and secure needed virus samples from China to begin work on a vaccine. His bosses dismissed his warnings as the Trump administration refused to plan ahead and peddled magical thinking and miraculous drug cures. Bright testified lives were endangered. I believe lives were lost. Bright also warned that without a single point of leadership or a master plan, the contagion will gain a strong foothold in much of the country so that a second wave may rise like a tsunami in the fall at the same time the seasonal flu hits. Americans, he said, may experience the darkest winter in modern history. Writing in Esquire, Charles Pierce said, Finally, a federal employee has said aloud what a greater portion of our sad, bunkered population has been waiting to hear. Bright confirmed that Trump and his cronies bungled the response to the pandemic and are now preparing to bungle the next stage. Even worse than they did the first. That's what we're going to keep talking about. All right, we got about three minutes left, Mr. McMillan, right? So in that three minutes, let's see what we might learn from stupid leadership in other nations. The country with the second largest number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 is now Brazil. It's not a coincidence that Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been Donald Trump's South American equivalent. When reporters have questioned his actions, the president tells them to shut up. 
Bolsonaro has refused to declare a nationwide lockdown of any sort, insisting that the economic toll would be far worse than the body count. Dr. Paola Minoprio, writing in Folia de Sao Paulo, said letting the virus rip to the population until we reach the 70% infection rate that could confer herd immunity, as Bolsonaro seems to advocate, would explode the healthcare system and kill millions of Brazilians. Doctors like me won't be silent. Well, I'm glad Radio Parallax has an equivalent down in Sao Paulo. Dr. Minoprio. Meanwhile, in Rio de Janeiro, they're on the verge of a health system collapse. In Brazil, as in America and in other places, the people are relying upon state authorities. State governors there have banned large gatherings and told people to telework when possible. But even they have avoided calling for a statewide shutdown, putting the decision onto city authorities. Way, Vladimir Putin's playing that same game over in Russia. He's passed the buck to state leaders and local leaders and gets to force all the hard decisions on them. Note to the Moscow Times, he gets to demand they both save lives and save the economy while sniping at them from the sidelines. And lastly, there's Nicaragua. There, President Daniel Ortega has claimed that Nicaragua has seen only 16 COVID-19 cases and five fatalities, even as doctors are reporting hundreds of deaths. Epidemiologist Alvaro Ramirez told the AFP news agency, we're entering a phase of rapid community spread of the virus. As the exponential curve continues to increase and more people become infected, we're going to get a chaotic situation. In contrast to restrictions in other Latin American countries, Nicaragua has been criticized for an almost complete absence of measures to contain the virus. Ortega has kept schools and offices open and and maintained crowd-drawing events like the National Soccer League. Of course, if you should die of the virus in Nicaragua, they give you three hours to organize a burial. Express burials are being called. Nicaraguan Vice President and Ortega's wife, Rosaria Murillo, accused the opposition of spreading lies in order to stoke anti-government sentiment. Alluding to the widespread reports of express burials, she accused the media of creating false realities to make it appear that events in other countries were happening in Nicaragua. All right, Ms. Ramil has found a great quote for which to end this show. It comes from Aesop. We hang petty thieves and appoint the great thieves to public office. And that about does it. One of these days we're going to talk about regular subjects that used to interest us and hopefully you. That day will come. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And I feel we must close the show with one upbeat zinger. Let's close with a quote from Albert Einstein. Apparently 100 Nazi professors published a book condemning Einstein's theory of relativity after the physicist had gone into exile. Einstein was untroubled and said, if I were wrong, one professor would have been enough. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 